0: Welcome to the Cocktail Guru Podcast.
1: A show about food, drink, and entertainment.
0: With a tight focus on the good life.
1: And all things delicious, luxurious, and fun.
0: I'm Jonathan Pogash, bartender, author, and the host of Cocktails The Grand Tour.
1: And I'm Jeffrey Pogash, wine and spirits professional, author, insatiable collector of culinary ephemera, and so
0: people tell me, an engaging raconteur. And my dad. Dad, your shirt is looking really, really great. Thank you, John. Uh, as, I appreciate that. Thank you. This is my. As, as we share. wear tiki
1: shirts, Greg, for all of our podcasts. Yes, we, we do. don't do anything except tiki shirts.
0: Yes, we do. I'm wearing. I'm wearing my uh, flamingo shirt, Dad. You 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 prematurely introduced our our guest by saying, uh, Greg. You said his name, um, and that's okay. That's okay. I know you're looking confused. Yes, I didn't know we were recording. <laughs> well, we are. Hey. We're recording. Okay, that's um,
1: even better. Fantastic.
0: It's but it, okay. the shirt um, is
1: in honor of our next guest, because he did publish a book that is a tiki book, at least one tiki book that is called Sippin' Safari.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yes. You're 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 getting ahead of yourself ahead. here. We we need to we need to have our cocktail right. first. That's correct. Can you can, can you tell me what you have? I have, have you a view carré.
1: One of my all-time oh, favorite yeah. cocktails because I adore cognac, just love cognac, mm. and the combination of Benedictine and sweet vermouth and Peychaud bitters and Angostura, but just incredible, oh, yeah. just delicious. And I've topped it off with two delectable cherries because oh. there's nothing but to me, cherry is the ultimate garnish. I'm sorry.
0: Well, the, yes, it. the real, the, the these real. These are real. Marriage, these know, are real marriage, cherries. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I have, you want to know what I have, Dad? You didn't even uh, ask please, me what I had. Please, because I no, assumed you, don't you would even tell care. me, but go right ahead. No. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. I have I have a French 75. <sighs> um, but if you can, for those of you at home watching on YouTube, you see the color, it's kind of purple. And I added this thing called Belure, <laughs> which is a really cool cocktail ingredient, butterfly pea flower, um, Makes uh, drinks that contain acid mm-hmm. purple, Dad. You've you've seen that before. Yes, right? I have. Mm. Cheers, very nice. Cheers. Can you raise your glass? Do you it right now. Cheers. Cheers. Just raise your glass. Raise your glass. Cheers. Let's have a sip. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ah, delicious, delicious. Um, and we'll bring out. You got a lot of paper shuffling. Try well, to keep it I'm down. Always now. shuffling papers. I'm um, a paper shuffler. What do you What do you have? What do you have for us today, Dad? What do you have? Well, we have a
1: very special guest with us because he is someone I first met a number of years ago, thanks to my hobby at the time, which is still my hobby. <coughs> obsession. Obsession.
0: Oh, sorry. Obsession oh, sorry. of collecting
1: rare first edition rare cocktail books. He happened to be publishing facsimile copies of some truly classic books under the Mud Puddle Books imprint. I think that... You, Jonathan, my intrepid, my intrepid co-host, first told me about <laughs> Mud Puddle, and I called our guest, who then kindly invited me to his office to look over his impressive collection of rare first edition cocktail books. There were thousands of them, I think, at the time. Um, I know there are many thousands now. After that, I continued meeting up with our guest, Greg Bohm, at different trade events like Tales of the Cocktail. And that's of course in New Orleans, and that is my first experience meeting with our next very
0: special guest. And since that time, uh, Greg has, to put it mildly, branched out to become one of the leading sellers of bar equipment under the name Cocktail Kingdom, and most impressively has also become one of the leading bar owners in New York City and uh, and around the world. I think we can say um, so. Th- this is uh, this is very interesting and very exciting and i'd like to now welcome on mr greg bohm thank you for having me. thanks greg great to see you and you notice in the background
1: behind me i have an array of mud puddle and cocktail kingdom facsimiles
2: yeah i see some of my old friends there everything from
0: charlie paul that's right uh uh, yeah there's a lot there's a lot behind you (laughs) yeah um, but before before we get into things, Greg, we always ask our guests uh, this one question. Uh, what is your desert island cocktail or your desert island drink, uh, you know, if you were stranded on a desert island?
2: So it's kind of interesting to ask me that right now because the uh, one of them that you're drinking there, the Bocaire, is absolutely my go-to uh, really? cocktail. One really? That, wow. Uh, we, I wouldn't say I drink it the most often of other cocktails, um, so that would definitely be the drink that I – search out the most um i always had an affinity to it just having been created at the hotel monteleone where tales of the cocktail was held for many years added to the romance um it predates the carousel bar so it wasn't actually created in the carousel bar although some people seem to think it was right uh but yeah so i think that's probably dark and stirred is my what i go for um i mostly drink mezcal but for cocktails
0: (laughs) definitely uh, wow
1: well i like you greg I definitely like.
0: Him. <laughs> if if he, no, if he, he fast fast didn't fast out. <laughs> if he didn't like you before, he likes you <laughs> now. You, no, he liked you if before. You didn't know he it before, you before. Well. You
1: know it now. You know I, ha- it I have um, a very rare cognac in here, by the way. So, it's, which what it's what even you better. What, I have Richard Hennessy cognac. Richard Hennessy cognac in here from my oh, stash. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, hey. Greg, we're gonna we're gonna take it back. We're gonna start from the very beginning. Um, where did you grow up?
2: Uh, so I grew up in Westchester County, New York, and then lived in Manhattan by far the majority of my life. And, and it, uh, my family has been in New York for I think I'm ninth generation. a years. very
0: Holy rare child. native New Yorker.
2: Wow, I'm an actual New Yorker.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So kind of uh, Dutch Dutch settlers. Wow. Well, is it that far back?
2: Great, 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 great grandfather's sister was in the first boat of Jews to ever arrive in New York. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. 16, well,
1: 1634,
2: I think.
1: Wow. Did you say the first Jews? Yes. First Yeah. boatload
0: of Jews wow. coming to the United yeah, States. A boatload of, boatload of Jews. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. That was Perfect. the name of my band in high school, Boatload of Jews. Um, no, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> um, so... And then, so growing up, um, did you, your family had a uh, a book publishing business, is that correct? Or, or, um, Yeah, my
2: grandfather started the Guinness Book of World Records and my father kind of built it to what it was and we had a family business called Sterling Publishing that was a large private publishing company and that is how I got into booze at first was through some books that we published.
0: So with the, that's interesting, with the Guinness Book of World Records, did you, did you grow up being um, introduced to a lot of these book of world records holders and kind of uh, cir- a <laughs> I, yeah. I don't want to say, I don't want to say circus acts, but you know,
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it was definitely part of my childhood. And um, we also own the Guinness museum. Oh, really? And we'd go there and there would be some of you know, the, I met the world's tallest woman and the world's fattest twins. And <laughs> the world's longest Wait fingernail. a second. I
1: pass a Guinness museum all the time.
2: It's yeah. a, so well, we—that's part of my family's past, yes, not the I present. See. But yeah, definitely
0: part of my childhood.
1: Wonderful, very rich, complex childhood. Yeah. I see. It was interesting. wonderful.
0: And and did you uh, did you kind of uh, grow up um, with booze around? Or did, <laughs> yeah, I think
2: um, I absolutely. I mean, my father is extremely into wine. My mother was always ordering sidecars, and this is the 1970s and early mm. 80s and she would ask everybody well do you make them with fresh lime mm. uh, fresh lemon juice and <laughs> they'd be like no and she's like well you're a restaurant you have lemons don't you and they'd be like yes and they like, <laughs> my mom would have people make like proper sidecars
0: wow um, so forget and, forget about dale de groff i mean your your mom was kind she's of she's the leader of the, who, of the cocktail the revolution leader. yes this
2: was, <laughs> it was a long time ago and then um yeah, and then we, my father published the book, Windows on the World Complete Wine Course with Kevin Zraeli, right. Um, right. after he took the course, and Kevin didn't really want to write a book, but my father recorded the le- lectures and turned it into a book, um, and then my father published Salvatore Calabresi's Classic yes. Cocktails, which is really how I yes. got into every... Oh, day. wow, okay. And then I actually introduced Dale DeGroff to Salvatore Calabresi, because we did the um, book launch for the Classic Cocktails book at the Rainbow Room.
1: Oh, wow. And you met Salvatore, I believe, in, at the Lanesboro?
2: When I first yeah, he was at the Library Bar at the My father met him when he was at Duke's, but I met, my personally met Salvatore for the first time um, at the Lanesboro In Hotel, London,
1: yes, and I first met him at the Savoy when I was leading a oh, trip yeah. there. And we had a great time at yeah. the American Bar. Wonderful time. Yeah, that's a great spot. But I think I went to your, I know I went to your father's office and I don't, he's the one I possibly met. This was a long time ago because I was trying to look for a publisher for a book idea that I had. And somebody suggested, oh, yeah. I, and my office was on Park Avenue and mm-hmm. I Park Avenue South. And I believe that's where Sterling was located. At the time was well,
2: 387 Park Avenue. Yep. South, well, right, We were at- just
1: a couple of blocks away and I went and tried to pitch the, the idea. And I, it was probably your father. I was speaking to. Absolutely. Yeah. How did the pitch go? Did you blow it? Well, it didn't work. I don't think I blew <laughs> it, but it didn't work. It was not enticing enough for them to say yes, but that's okay. I, I keep trying. Yeah. Thirty years (laughs) later, I'm still trying.
0: And during uh, during the time that you lived in New York City, you worked for the family business. um, Uh, uh, On the well, I mean, I
2: started not working for the family business because I wanted to try something else, and then I went into the family business. um, And then we sold Sterling Publishing to Barnes and Noble many years ago. At which point, I started Mud Puddle. Um, And was mostly publishing children's books and then started doing exact facsimile reproductions of antique cocktail books, which then I met bartenders, people like Don Lee, Jim Meehan, and the like, and uh, Sasha Trotsky and all this whole group, Audrey Saunders. And then I started um, importing barware. Uh, And then after importing barware, I realized there was an opportunity to make things a little bit better. Um, So I started Designing and manufacturing barware. Designing meaning getting input because I wasn't truly an expert. Getting input from many, many of the best bartenders of the time or the most vocal ones, and we started Cocktail Kingdom as a design and manufacturing company, um, which it is now.
0: And your your extensive vintage cocktail book collection. When did that uh, When did that obsession uh, begin? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Around 16 years ago when I was drinking cocktails at Salvatore Calabresi's bar, and then I became obsessed with cocktails and didn't really have an outlet for it in New York. At the time, Angel Share existed, but I didn't know it existed. And so I was really into cocktails. So I bought my first cocktail book in London at an antiquarian bookstore. And then I bought a second cocktail book. That was Paul E. Lowe's 1904 edition, a pocket book, a pocket-sized book. And then... um I then I got a second book which was um yeah that I bought at a bookstore in New York and I started collecting cocktail books and became pretty obsessed with them about 16 years And ago. this
0: one dad is that is This showing one was something important that...
1: to you I believe.
2: Uh, yeah the uh, Louise Mixed drinks yes. from 1906 the first book to have a dry martini in it called a dry martini. That's right. And that was in- Different books have different meaning to me. I mean, that one was super important. One of my earliest books I got. And it's also just physically beautiful. So some books have good information. Some have the first cocktail, which first dry martini is significant. Some are just gorgeous. Um, yeah. Some have things like, you know, Bottoms Up, which has the dry shake in it right. in the nineteen you know fifties. Like, yeah. oh, I didn't know that was an older <clears> thing. <throat> so different books gain meaning for different reasons. Of course. Um, but now we have a working research library with over 3,800 different books uh that Martin Dudoroff helps me maintain and oh, wow. it's kind of an amazing place.
0: Yeah. Well, I remember going, I remember going to your office um you know, men, many years. Actually, when when the hell was that? I think I was working on uh opening the Empire Room um mm-hmm. in like 2009 or 2008 um and I wanted to get. I wanted to take a look at some uh, some old books and do some research. Uh, and you kindly and and you were you were doing that to anyone who asked. You would have them yeah. come in and they could. And it was a research library. Um. And and it sounds like the, you're kind of back to doing that.
2: Yeah, we are. We just moved the books into a new location on West 8th Street above one of my bars called Mace. Yes. In New yes. York City, and uh, by appointment. But anybody who wants to come in and do research is welcome to do so. And there's access to yeah, thousands of antique pocketbooks and some modern ones, obviously, so people can do proper research. But
1: um, and, and then if you stay long enough, you can go to Mace and have drinks. Yeah. Starting at it's around four or five night. o'clock in the afternoon, right? Yeah, Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Yep. I'm there. Yeah, no, I'm I, there. I wanna, uh, let me make hysteria. an appointment now, feet. Greg.
0: He's on his way. Um, I want to, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to talk more. Um, we're just going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
1: John, I think you know by now, one of our favorites single malt scotch whiskeys, I have made many a fine cocktail with the original, which is a spicy and well-balanced classic Highlands malt,
0: and with the other expressions which provide an array of delicious and complex flavors. Dad, they're all perfect for sipping neat, or with a dab of water, or an ice cube, or hey, even as the base spirit in a cocktail. Glenmorangie is the perfect choice for parties or relaxing with friends, or when you visit your favorite bar or cocktail lounge.
1: As you can see, John, there is something for every taste with the Glenmorangie portfolio.
0: Oh, man, I can't stop thinking about the Kinta Rubin, Nectar Dior, the 10-year-old, the LaSalle. The, the list goes on and on. I'm so in enamored with Glenmorangie, and we've, we've been working with them for a very long time, Dad. And
1: rightfully so. All of those expressions are scrumptious.
0: Cheers. Cheers, John. And now we are back. That was fast, um, <laughs> uh, uh, Dad. Um, when did your when does your obsession start with with the cocktail? You know, books? it's
1: a good question. It started, I guess, in 1993 um, when I first arrived at uh, Shefflin and Somerset Company. You know, I was so happy to to have a job there at one of the finest importing companies in the United States at the time. And then I, up until then I was working with wines only, but then I entered the world of spirits because the company had both wines and spirits. And that's when I started learning about recipes and cocktails and, uh, and thinking about collecting old books. And it's when I met David Wondrich and, uh, all of our other friends, um, uh, your mentor, Gary Regan, for example, they then encouraged me to look for these books because they could see how interested I was. And it just took off from there. You have quite a, how many books would you say you have dad? I'm embarrassed. I I don't want to say because Greg has so many more than I do. He has thousands. I don't have that. I don't even have hundreds
2: I have, have yeah, but hey. I remember your collection is quite curated I mean it, that's it's the very same small
1: if, it's very small but yeah, I I curated, look for but. books that are in very good condition you know great condition and I once I could kick myself for doing this but I, I had the golden opportunity Ah, uh, yes to buy a true first edition now I have these books one of which is in back of me Jerry Thomas. And I, decide, <laughs> I decided since I already had two of them, I wasn't going to get another one. And I passed on the opportunity. It was a golden opportunity. It would have cost me about $300 for the book. And I said, no. That, that's my greatest regret.
0: Greatest regret in, in life. Co- in cocktail book collecting. Um, Greg, would you say that that Jerry Thomas book is still kind of the unicorn out there these days?
2: Um, the only version that's exceedingly rare is actually the 1882 version that has the $1. fifty price on the cover. Hmm. That's extremely rare. And then the 1876 second edition um, is the next rarest one, and there's a few versions, and he may or may not have updated that himself. He was alive compared to the 1887 third edition, which he wasn't. Even, he wasn't alive, so he couldn't have updated. You don't it
1: mean obviously. the 1862 edition, do you? Uh, I misspoke? 1862
2: Whoa. I'm a little yeah, rusty. But the dollar yes, fifty
1: price was 1862.
2: Yeah, no, I did. I misspoke. 1862, the first book that's considered the first cocktail book. Right. So yeah, the 1862 version with the dollar right. fifty on the cover. Right. Is, uh, is the rare one, and then 1876 right. uh, is also really quite right. rare. Um, but rare, I mean, in my world, we get into such tiny minutiae and what makes something rare. I mean, I can look at different versions of the Jerry Thomas yeah. books and tell you when they were probably mm-hmm. printed, even if they're essentially almost identical. There's certain tells. Um, and so, yeah, it is – I mean, it's definitely – Obviously, with David Wondrich writing the book *Imbibe* about Jerry Thomas, just adds to the mystique of it as well. But there are definitely a lot of other books that are much, much rarer.
0: And and what is uh, I'm I'm always curious because I've I've really seen the evolution of cocktail book collecting um, Mm -hmm. since you know nobody was really doing it when I started off you know in 2001 and then really. It seems like when when I was invited to your uh, to your office and I saw all of this, then I kind of noticed, hey, uh, everybody's getting these these vintage copies and and they're they're becoming worth so much. Is there has there been a clear sort of evolution arc of of kind of the rare cocktail book um, collecting?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's been, the values have gone up and down. I mean, mostly up, but a little bit down. And then there's been a few, like the gun club drink book, which is yep. essentially not a good book. It's not, but, it became but I, I have it's it not. in
1: the collection, but I I agree with you. It's not a great book.
2: It's, but it became no. like this lore because there was one copy on eBay that once sold for $2,000. I have no idea why. And so there, it is funny, like collecting with anything, there's certain things that become something that people are looking for, but ultimately disappointing when they all yes yes. <laughs> um, but there's some books like Scientific Barkeeping as a title that from the 1800s that I don't have uh, a first edition of that I'm looking for. It's such a mediocre book. <laughs> there's
1: a, I, I saw one of your interviews uh, with your mm. friend Eric. Um, mm-hmm. and you said in that interview that you were looking for a book by Apple Green. Yeah, and I believe I have that. I was looking all over for it. I think Uh-oh. I don't know. I don't Uh-oh. know if you know what it looks like, but
2: I, um, is, I've seen an image it a of small, it. Yes, it's a small black a cool book, book.
1: Like a, black it can have a, a green cover, book. black yeah.
2: cover. It's about. size. I
1: have it somewhere in this house.
2: Whoa! You should find that. That's kind of well, but I, I don't know on. if it's the
1: first edition or not. You said you were looking for the first uh, well, edition.
2: Well, there's three editions that I right. know of, and all three are exceedingly well, valuable.
0: I, b- I believe I well, have. What much. are we talking? How much are we talking here, well, Greg? <laughs>
2: first editions into the thousands, certainly. Yeah. I mean, there's no known copies outside of one in a library. There's no known copies in a private
0: collection. Really? So, Dad, you think that you I have do? This? I'm pretty sure that I do. <laughs>
2: okay, there's one copy in a private collection. Well,
0: you need to find it then. And I've been to- ser- I had spent hours
1: this morning looking for it. But I have <laughs> books in varied and multifaceted places in this house. And yeah. and I, I just couldn't come up with it in time for the interview, but I know that I
0: have it somewhere. And there is dad, there was a time you you were looking through the New York Public Library oh. auction catalog. Was that the auction catalog? No, no, no the rare Christie's? book collection. No, the, no, the, no, No no. I'm talking about um, I'm sorry. There was a Jerry Thomas up for auction. For um, oh, $20, yeah, $20,000, $20, $20, $20, $20,
1: yes, 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 Wonder but that was it. sold by our friends up in Maine, the antiquarian book mm-hmm. dealer in Maine,
0: uh, and they were selling it for $25,000,
1: public New York Public Library, yes,
0: and that went through. It did, I mean, yes, that's it did. like uh, what, the the the,
1: that's what that book is worth. That book well, is worth, I don't know, that doesn't mean it's worth that that, that's what they paid for it. But that—that
2: that, yeah, exactly which edition. It was the it was the first,
1: I believe, the the very first edition. But
2: uh, yeah, if it has the dollar fifty on the cover right. and has, it's still a high price. But if it has the dollar fifty and it's in good condition and it's the green one, not the red one, <laughs> it could be ah, worth a lot.
1: Well, I have a green one and a red one.
2: In with the dollar fifty. No. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's, two, two fifty. <laughs> Yeah, the reason I say the dollar fifty because the price went up over the years, and there's you know the two dollar version, the two dollar fifty cent version, which was a very expensive book in eighteen sixty two. Yeah.
0: Yes, a very expensive book. Yes. I we need to we need to bring up your bars uh, because sure. there seems to have been in your career um, a or professional. Actually, I was just listening to a podcast with uh, Ken Burns, and he he doesn't call it career; he calls it professional life. I think it's because career kind of boxes you in, and anyway, so professional life, um, Mm -hmm. where you transitioned from the books and even the bar tools to owning bars. Um, Yeah, it seemed, Dad. Dad, you were saying it seemed. Yes, I
1: wrote this as part of our script, and I said these bars just came out of nowhere. That's how it seemed to me, and when I started reading about them, I had no idea that you Greg Baum was the owner of these places especially the latest one i think it's the latest one katana kitten
2: yeah katana I mean, kitten that's was, amazing uh, yeah it's a uh, katana i mean i travel in japan i lecture in japan a lot most in tokyo specifically and the katana kitten is based on the shinjuku neighborhood of tokyo which i'm fairly obsessed mm. with So Katana Kitten. And then before that, when Mace was in the world's 50 best bars for three years, which I partnered with Nico DeSoto. Yeah. Because he was one of my favorite bartenders after having met him at Experimental Cocktail Club. Yes. Um, And then there's... The Cabinet. The Cabinet is my newest Mm -hmm. obsession. That's my Mezcal bar. I'm pretty sure we have the largest collection of Mezcal in the United (laughs) States and nobody knows about us. We have hundreds. Um, I'm in Oaxaca every... Eight really? weeks all no, oh, that's wow. A, that's I just went back the day before yesterday. And so I definitely do a ton of, I mean, I'm learning about Mezcal, bring people in, to help with Mezcal education. But, yeah, so between Katana Kitten, um, my Mezcal bar, The Cabinet, and Mace, which is now in a much larger location in the West Village, um, I feel pretty fortunate. My bars have certainly uh, thrived.
1: Well, I need to go to all of them, but Katana Kitten was tops on my list.
2: Well, yeah, that was, I think, number 10 in the world's 50 yeah. best bars this yeah. year, which is the highest ranking bar in the United States. And it's just hospitality based. It's it's amazing. I mean, uh is a great host. The drinks are good. It's, it's kind of the full fun package.
1: Well, I'm there. I'm there. And yeah. I'll pro-
2: And oh, it's a nine minute walk from the uh, library and from Mace. So it's all in one. Well, I can kill
1: three so. birds with one stone then. Great. Yeah, exactly. I will do that. Well,
0: we'll go. Dad, we'll, we'll be in in New York City together soon and we'll we'll go to all of these no, places. No, I'm going to go uh, there
1: before you get here, I think. You t- Dad, okay, I'll wait. That's fine. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Cuz I probably uh, wouldn't get we'll- in unless I had you next to me.
0: No, <laughs> uh, you get in. Um, so now, um, the bar tools, I mean, everybody knows about your bar tools um, mm-hmm. and how you, you, used to, you used to source them all from Japan, and then you were probably realizing, hey, you know, I, I could have these manufactured um, yeah. myself and sell them myself, and it would be more cost effective.
2: Well, it was that, and I was sourcing from Japan and Germany, and actually, the, we got too big, and the people I was working with in Japan didn't want the quantity. And huh. I was forced to start designing and manufacturing stuff. And then um, based on historical elements, I realized there was a lot of historical pieces of barware that didn't exist and hadn't existed since either late 1800s or certainly since Prohibition, let's say. Yeah. So it was a combination. Then we just started uh, designing, and manufacture our own um, and then we you know, put our name on it and, did well
0: and and really i think <clears throat> you guys seem to have been one of the first brands or companies to partner with bartenders and cocktail influencers on products um which yeah i know, mean it was kind of, it was
2: based on the skateboard world i mean sort of working with people to design products everything from uh dave Wondrich, gary Regan, audrey saunders uh, even with nico DeSoto and other people who had a specific idea jim Meehan, we have some spoons with uh, measuring spoons so with different people we were working with that had ideas and certainly jeff beach bumberry with his tiki line and we as a publishing company i still own a publishing company we published his books in safari and potions of the caribbean and did a whole line of tiki borrower with him so it, it's been growing and it's, it's been really great. I mean, the new Audrey Saunders sours glass sour glass has been doing incre- increasingly well. And, uh, it's fun to work with people who have a different idea on what should be out there that maybe is not readily available. And then cocktail kingdom brings it to market.
0: Now, as, as an entrepreneur, I really want to know, Greg, how, how the hell do you just keep everything straight in your brain? Because you have, there are so many things and I feel this way too. Like my brain is so, um, packed with all of the different things that I have going on and trying to keep track of everything. What is, you know, what is your, your secret?
2: I mean, on it's really, I mean, I am surrounded by good people and I tend not to get as stressed as other people. So <laughs> let things uh, kind of play out. And during November, December, I sort of lose it because I also have the miracle Christmas yes, pop-up cocktail yes. bar. And, and you have
1: 90 Christmas. of those throughout the world. Oh, now it's 104. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah.
2: Goodness. So 100, 101 Miracle locations and 40 Sipping Santa locations, which is the Tiki Christmas version with Beach Bum Berry. And this year we're projecting uh, 200. Holy God. That. So that's That's when that's... I do get to a point where I just lose it. And that's trying to keep up with manufacturing and creating barware and creating glassware for Miracle. And then... Um, uh, but it's it's interesting. The way I actually do it is I'm so obsessed with Mezcal right now. That gives me having, you know, it was cocktail books. I still love my anti-cocktail books, but that obsession gives me energy to do everything right. else. And now it's Mezcal and I'm exploring Mezcal, going to Mexico. And now I'm came back two days ago and I'm bursting with energy and ready to sit down and stare at some spreadsheets for the next wow. two weeks.
1: Well,
0: you know, it's a, it's a balance.
1: Oaxaca is wonderful. Jonathan and I made a trip to Oaxaca and it was yeah, yeah it's incredible. Yes. Yeah.
0: And you run you run the um the miracle bars kind of like a franchise type of situation, yeah. yeah? Similarly. And yeah. Are they they're called
1: they were called Christmas miracle bars
2: originally? It's miracles so if you're on Broad Miracle on Broadway or if you're on First Street. Miracle on First Street. But
1: it was designed then, for the Christmas period.
2: No It's just Christmas. We're open late November, it throughout December uh, that, and we have the same glassware, okay. same drinks at each location, similar decor, although not the same oh, decor because okay. every place is a little different.
1: So it's yeah. not open year-round. It's open only during cool. the Christmas yeah. period.
2: Yeah. Originally, it was from Thanksgiving until New Year's, and now it's just been getting longer because people seem to be knocking on the door earlier and earlier to have a little bit of a Christmas cheer with everything that's going on in the yes. world.
1: And you have a plethora of Christmas decorations, I understand.
2: Yeah, kind of looks. Uh, it's very over the top. Yeah. It's like a Christmas right. experience, and the drinks have a lot of you know cinnamon and nutmeg mm. in them, mm. things like that. But it's fun, and then we have bright red Cocktail Kingdom barware for yeah. that.
0: <laughs> and I, and going back to the bars for a second, I mm. know that um, you know I see Nico and all of his travels, and mm. um, is does when he travels around, is he doing it? Doing these pop ups? These are pop ups on behalf of Mace, and he's kind of educating while he's going around and, and creating entertainment too?
2: He does he does a various things. So yes, a lot of them are we do mace pop-ups at well as well as he represents his bar in Paris called Danico. Oh
0: yeah.
2: Um and we have bar where we have the double teardrop bar spoon that we make with uh Nico and his mix tin, which is like a mixing glass, but it's made of aluminum, double walled aluminum, so it's durable. Um so we have different barware with him. So he represents sort of everything as he travels around the world, but definitely he does a lot of mace pop-ups to represent yeah. the bar worldwide.
0: He's kind of, he's kind of a, your ambassador, uh, in, in a way. Yeah, yeah
2: he <laughs> is. And I don't know how he keeps up the schedule he does, but he does it. He's, he's young,
0: you know, he's, Younger. he's a young, he's Younger, young, so. young, at heart, young at heart. Right. <laughs> know. Um, so what's, uh, You know, with the last couple of minutes that we have left, I know this has flown by, hasn't it? Yes, it
1: has. Unlike other (laughs) interviews we've done, this has (laughs) truly flown by.
0: (laughs) Those shall remain nameless. No, Dad. Every interview is
1: exciting, and they're all on different subjects. We don't just do cocktails or bartending or spirits. Great. Now we're gonna
0: get. Now we're gonna get tons of hate mail. No, we're not. Mm -hmm.
1: So this is it's refreshing to be able to go back a little bit to the bar and cocktail world
0: No, it Mm -hmm. is but but you know the the cliche question what do you have coming up next
2: well i'm opening a new bar um which i said i would never do again Uh, wait wait wait
0: why did you say that you would never open up a bar again is it because it actually was making you stressed
2: uh, oh i do get stressed (laughs) with opening bars. yeah that's that's one of the limits um yeah just things have been going well with cocktail kingdom miracle and um you know other things that i'm doing and i don't really feel the need to open a bar i'm happy with you know katana kitten's success um the cabinet isn't known yet but hopefully that mezcal bar will get known and may certainly has had its you know been spending some time in the sun so that's uh all good so i don't feel the need to do a lot more Uh, it's been interesting i'm want to start lecturing a little bit more i think it's a lot of our barware for cocktail kingdoms out there like the leopold jigger which a lot of other companies copy leopold is my great-grandfather i named it after him i mean a lot of this barware, like the corico strainer didn't just happen it's copied all the time and don lee designed it with cocktail kingdom and there's a lot of things um so what's next for me is kind of hitting the road again and getting out there and uh when you know you started in the industry you remember there were there wasn't a great place to get good barware. And then cocktail kingdom started and we were the only game in town. And now younger bartenders don't always realize that this was something that wasn't always available. And I think it's fun to get out there. I used to lecture a lot with Jim Meehan about cocktail books. um, And I mean, he would bring a lot to the table about just the spirit of bartending and educating oneself. And that's my next thing is getting out there lecturing more, talking to people about the history of barware so people aren't complacent about things and all the tools, you know, literally and figuratively, figuratively that they have available to them now, um, whether it's different types of liqueurs, different barware, all these things that I think people would do well by taking a step back and realizing what's available to them now and how to use them and to respect history and to create modern things but historically based is my passion. So I kind of, that's more what I want to do. Get out there, lecture, talk, talk about Mezcal, talk about barware, talk about cocktail books again, because it's been a while.
0: I love that. Wow. Well, it's all about talking about what you love. Yes, yeah. it is. And I might add, Greg, that I am so
1: proud of your accomplishments. Thank It's, you. it's just, no, seriously, it's just incredible what you've done
0: you just, in a Greg, just call him. just call in him a very short period say of time. Thanks,
2: thanks Dad. <laughs> well, I remember the first time we sat across a plane from each other. We were like on opposite sides of the aisle on an airplane. Yes. I don't know how many years ago, but a long time ago. And I was kind of new in the industry and we were chatting and it was just like a more basic sort of get to know each other conversation. And then years later, I still remember the people that were kind of the founding people that kept... The cock- well, started the cocktail renaissance and then kept it going, and now it's—I mean—it's mainstream pretty much, which isn't a yeah. bad thing.
0: Absolutely, I know. It's crazy. Cheers to that. Yeah, Greg, thank you. This has been this has been awesome. Thank, thank you, you very thank much, much you so Greg. Much. Wonderful to see you again. Cheers. 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 Wow, Dad, that was great to have Greg Bohm, who's really like the master of uh, of a lot of things, isn't he? Yes, he is a master of all trades and you know it it led us to have this next guest on because uh with greg we touched on bar tools and and cocktail kingdom and and japanese bar tools and what dad yeah i don't know
1: much about japanese (laughs) bar tools so i am really anxious to speak with chris and find out all about how these tools differ from your standard bar
0: tools So we decided to call up our good pal, Chris Tunstall from A Bar Above, uh, and he's here joining us uh, from his offices near San Diego. Um, Chris, welcome to the Cocktail Guru Podcast.
3: Guys, it is really great to be here, and thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited to be on this side of the uh, the microphone for one. (laughs) It's great to have you.
0: Well, we thought it would be fitting to have you because, well, we all know Greg Bohm is kind of like the OG uh, when it comes to bar tools and Cocktail Kingdom is kind of the modern day OG. Um, your company is a modern day bar tool supply company, um, and I, I presume you have Japanese bar tools and have had experience with Japanese bar tools. So we just wanted to kind of get your perspective on the tools themselves. Like what what is, uh, you know, for, for those who may not know, what is a typical Japanese style bar tool. Why do we use it? Why is it why is it beneficial?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, Greg could probably speak to this a lot better than I can. But you know, a lot of Japanese bartending is really steeped in tradition. Um, you know, it never really had a prohibition like we had here. So a lot of the tools, a lot of the techniques, have just kind of carried forward all the way through till now. Um, and it's really interesting because a lot of the focus on Japanese bartending, the style is a lot of it is focused on customer service, on the visual aspects of it, and making the best possible cocktail using the best possible ingredients, which also mean the best possible tools. And sometimes, it it could be funny because it could be a little bit counterintuitive um, because if you're looking for the result of the best cocktail, it might not actually be the most visually appealing um, device that you're gonna use to make that drink. Um, So a lot of the emphasis, like I said, is put on the show to make the customer feel really good about what they're, what they're about to enjoy. Um, because we always consume with our eyes first. Um, so the visual aspect there is really, really high. Um, the quality of the bar tools themselves are, they're phenomenal. I mean, they are second
0: to none. It's, it's not your, I mean, listen, when, when we first started in the industry, you'd go to the, um, well, I would go to Chinatown and I would get my bar tools in the, you know, in the, in these cheap, cheap ass bar tool places. Um, and, and you'd have to replace those every few years. Um, but with ja- once Japanese bar tools came about, it was quality over the quantity. Um, I mean, wouldn't you say?
3: A hundred percent, yeah. And there is a, a form and function behind every piece of uh, bar tool that exists behind a Japanese-style bar. And it's really well thought out. Um, the approach that they take is you know, just quality craftsmanship. And it's just something that goes across even past – um, bar tools, um, you know, with woodworking tools, the same thing. It's just really, really honed and perfect for what they're using it for. And they're
0: aesthetically beautiful
1: as well, correct?
3: They're gorgeous. Yeah.
0: Oh, you yeah. see it on a bar top. You know, you walk into a bar and you see these bar yeah. tools yeah. on the bar top, you know that they're, you know, that they're serious. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I've run into in the past, because I know you do the same, Chris, designing bar mm-hmm. programs, you know, is, is convincing... Convincing the bar owners and the operators to splurge on these bar tools because they are a bit more expensive than your basic bar tools.
3: Yeah, there's definitely um, that that expense part of it, and you know, I think the way I try to frame it is from that customer service perspective too. Of like, this is what your customers are going to see. It's a kind of a um, a mark on your brand. Like th- we stand for quality, and so um, you know, you could command a little bit more um, of a price with that. When you have all the visual elements kind of pointing all in the same direction so it's part of the branding process of a bar and the other thing is like you mentioned jonathan um the quality like how many bar tools have you thrown away because they've fallen apart over the years um you know if you invest in some really great bar tools they're probably gonna last last a lifetime and that's no joke like seriously a lifetime
0: right i know i mean all my bar tools last uh quite a long time i mean i use those good quality bar tools and um mm-hmm. you started So you started A Bar Above um, how long ago? And and kind of just briefly, what got you into doing that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there was a lot less gray in my beard uh, when we started (laughs) A Bar Above. You know, I was a young, eager bartender with stars in my eyes. And we started off as a blog. And that's actually how our paths have crossed um, over the years. And, um, you know, our focus when we started the blog was really communicating um, cutting-edge techniques. Because if at the time uh, we started back in I had the idea in 2008, um, but we didn't start producing content until 2013. And at that time, unless you were in San Francisco or New York, as you know, um, you didn't have access to a lot of this cutting edge technique and reading about it and living it are two very, very different things. So a lot of that information didn't get carried out into other areas. So that was a focus of why we started of Bar above was to communicate those, those techniques, both physical and culinary. Um, and then we've kind of evolved from that into manufacturing bar tools, because at that time, there were only a handful of bar um, bar suppliers uh, in the country, and we felt like, you know, we could provide a little higher quality, better customer service on our end, um, and really give bartenders a good customer service experience. Because I think that's something that's very lacking in our industry from a bartender perspective is, you know, we, we give out customer service all day long, but very few people give us customer service. So that was kind of the hallmark of our brand since... Basically, day one.
0: Yeah, and I think we we met. Was it at San Antonio Cocktail Conference?
3: Yeah, we did. Yeah, mm-hmm. I,
0: I think I was doing a seminar. I think you guys came to see uh, one of the seminars, if if I'm not mistaken, or something,
3: something like that. And I think we had a, a craft bartender summit. You know, back in like 2000, I 2000 somethings. Uh, and you were one of our guests. You were talking about um, getting started with consulting. Yes, that was the focus that you did. Yes, that's right. Which that's went right. over really well, by the way.
0: Thank you. Well, you know, this guy next to me, or wherever, however you're looking, uh, is is the guy who kind of got me into this.
3: <laughs> so right. you can
0: blame Absolute you can blame problem. him. I blame you, Dad.
1: Well done, sir. No, please do. I accept. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, Chris, thank you so much. Um, it's it's so great to see your face, and and I'm sure we'll we'll cross paths in person again, hopefully very very
3: soon. Absolutely, it was great to connect, guys. Thank you, Chris. That
0: does it for
1: today's show. If you enjoy what we do, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also support the show with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. Just click on the Donate button at the top of our website and choose your donation amount. To learn more about future guests, visit www.thecocktailgurupodcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.
0: The Cocktail Guru Podcast is produced by First Real Entertainment and distributed by Eats Drinks TV, a service of the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, and wherever you listen to your favorite shows.